Welcome to the Better Being Podcast with Greg Stark and Ali Orr. This is a podcast that dives into the four pillars of performance, movement, mindset, nutrition, and mental health. We speak with experts, find real-life case studies and helpful anecdotes, and we do our best to learn more about optimizing human performance. All right, guys, today I am here with Helen De Silva, who I'm really excited to talk to. She's a registered psychologist based in Brisbane, and she has a wealth of knowledge around mental performance and working with high-performance people, trying to get the most out of their mental health and their, you know, using mental skills and all that type of thing. I don't know much about it, so I'm going to pass straight over to Helen. And Helen, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and talk about the work that you do. Yeah, look, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Ali. It's um, it's definitely a pleasure to be able to offer some insights around various things. Um, so I guess, uh, yeah, look, uh, the sort of work that I do, I guess the demographic that I work with, I tend to work much more with um, people who are in the sort of corporate sector and professionals and those high demanding, high performing roles. So examples of sort of clientele I have uh, veterinarians who are uh, they're either specialists or they're just about to hit their specialists um, going through their fellowship exams um, also some medical hype sort of professionals in that area so looking with anaesthetists cardiologists so so I've got some medics in there um, definitely have done some work with athletes too which is quite exciting very very different to a degree as well because the needs are different and performing artists now so doing more of that with uh, musicians and also actors as well coming up in Australia which is really fun that's a really fun part so it's nice nice and varied and I guess um, the focus really is more not just about the remedial side of things, which I think traditionally as a psychologist and when we're talking about mental health, people tend to take quite a, a reactive type of approach to it as opposed to necessarily preventative and then also looking at the performance or what we call sort of expansion, I guess, in my line of work as well. So the work that I do is not just about remedially helping people to come back to a level of balance or, you know, zero if we were looking at sort of, you know, a continuum and you've got your negatives. Uh, people not necessarily feeling great mental health, so they're sort of in the negatives, and then we're bringing them back to a sense of balance, which is zero. I'm actually looking at then taking them past that as well. And that's something that people, we're not traditionally taught to do. Uh, you know, we sort of lived life by default. Um, I think probably more in Europe, our Scandinavian um, counterparts, they're much more au fait with doing that sort of work and teaching their, their children at a very young age those sorts of skills, mental skills and mental performance enhancement skills and life skills generally. And we're just not, you know, a lot of us, we're sort of a little bit behind in Australia, I think, to catch up on that, but we're starting to, you know, that's starting to accelerate. So that's sort of the crux of the work that I that I tend to do at the moment, which is really fun, very varied. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really interested in, you say you're doing like med students and stuff in the medical field mm. and then performing artists and musicians. Like that sounds to me like completely different fields. And are there like really different, um, you know, type of mental skills that you would need from one person to another you know in those different types of fields yeah look there definitely are I think there's always going to be sort of a a, a nice base suite of things I think people can always really benefit from and so usually at the outset uh, if we're looking at just those two sort of types of clients so looking at sort of medical professionals veterinarians and then also looking at performing artists um, you know some of those base things are going to be looking at imagery skills and it's not necessarily just about you know using your imagination it's much more involved in terms of learning how to actually engage the five human senses so we're really making it real and it's, it's one thing to sort of talk about it and read it from a book but it's another thing to actually be able to put it into practice so things like imagery there's some other frameworks as well I think everyone should also have as a base so some of those are looking at diffusion techniques or they come from a framework that we use in psychology called acceptance and commitment therapy and they're just basic sort of um, skills I think we should all have. Um, 
when we're starting to look at things, uh, you know, performance anxiety is probably a key feature as to what comes up in those two potential populations. Imposter syndrome is a massive one too. So we're often looking at um, emotional regulation, uh, sort of self-awareness technique that's always got to be at the outset. Can't really do any work with anyone unless they've, you know, they're, they're, they're willing, they've either got a higher level of insight to be able to do the work and self-awareness or they're willing to develop that skill. And if I'm sort of working with someone where ego is really strong um, and actually is getting in the way of them being able to do that, then that makes it really, really challenging. And so sometimes my work is focused on that to begin with. Um, but I guess if you were looking at the two different populations, um, there's two sort of very different needs that are emerging. And this is sort of talking from, I guess, the client experience I'm having. So with the veterinarians, uh, yes, at the moment, I've got quite a few suite, uh, a suite of um, individuals that are looking to try and get through their fellowship exams. So that's likened to someone going through as a medical professional and you know looking to become a cardiologist or a specialist in that field. These are tough. Um, it's very, the Australian exams are ex extremely hard. They're world-renowned for being for probably some of the toughest, and the pass mark is 70%. And uh, if you miss by 0.5, you can't contest it, you're out. You know, you was three times and you're out, and then you've got to go through the American system. And most of the time, most people fail. So they're arduous, they're hard. And so um, these, these guys are working as residents and then fellows. And so they're doing 12 to 14 hours a day, at least five days a week, plus they're needing to study for their exams. And I will start working with these guys 15 months out from when they're actually needing to sit. It's worse almost than, be, than, than applying to sit for GAMSAT, which is, you know, the medical exams. I think I'm not sure if they call that now, but those medical exams here in Australia mm -hmm. to become a doctor. So these are tough. So the guys are working through that plus the imposter syndrome. But once they get past that stage, there's a massive adjustment period. All of a sudden now they're not necessarily needing to study. So they've sometimes had 10 years identifying as still being a student, even though they're practising as a doctor and a veterinarian. Now they're working into the, going into the, polyx, the, the politics of actually now being a specialist. And that's a whole other different playing ground. It's like a chessboard game. Um, you're dealing with very strong egos. You're dealing with um, traditional ways of doing things that no longer cut the mustard because of the amount of work, the amount of you know increases in business. You're then now need to figure out how do they actually run a business because they are actually running a business now as, as a specialist. So, And a lot of them didn't necessarily even think about that when they're coming in. So that, that transition, there's changes in identity and also that, oh, am I good enough? Is that that's a very very strong feature. The fear of failure is so incredibly strong. Um, when it comes to the performing artists as well, there's a lot of performance anxiety that happens in that too. But I'm trying to help uh, a lot of those clients really connect more with who they are in themselves and being able to learn how to take on other characters and connect with them um, using such techniques as imagery, etc., um, and other frameworks. But then also being able to disconnect. And also handle the failure, the rejection. Rejection is obviously so rampant in the performing industries, you know, and also in looking at athletes, you know, squad selection is extremely, extremely um, uh, traumatic for people if they don't necessarily pass or they experience an injury that basically ends their career. So there's sort of different different sort of common needs, I guess, going across the different populations. There tends to be a base suite of, you know, emotional regulation, self-management, self-awareness. There's always going to be relaxation techniques. I sort of look at those to be sort of real basic things that they need to learn at the early outset. Um, but the self-awareness and then also um, being able to sort of tailor and attune those skills then, those frameworks to their individual needs, that's the really fun part I, I, I tend to really, really love. And some of the work I do with them is non-verbal, which is nice. So it's not traditional psychology where you're constantly talking back and forth, which I think is probably the more common way people think that, you know, you work with psychologists. A lot of the work can be now done more with what we call somatic work. So, you know, using the body, incorporating, engaging with the five senses, learning how to monitor that, and then also nonverbal things, which can be really more safe for clients who are not good communicators, 
don't want to talk about something and also something could be particularly traumatic and actually dangerous for us to even consider entertaining going back to that. So um, I think the, yeah, that's, so that's sort of, it's, it's quite fun. There's sort of, hopefully I've answered your question with that. It's not a long answer, but it's quite fascinating. It's like, how long is a piece of string? I could almost talk about that forever. Yeah, it's quite, quite, quite entertaining. Hmm. You know, that seems so interesting to me. You know, you're talking about the ego thing and also imposter syndrome. Is that, do those, yeah. can those things coexist yeah. together? Like some people have like, you know, a really big ego um, but then also feel like they're an imposter in the industry. Like because I feel like personally um, in my sport and work, sometimes I think, oh, you know, I'm a hot, hot thing, you know, I've got everything going for me and everything. But then sometimes I also feel like I don't belong in the room. Like is that is that possible? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. It it makes sense. I mean, the imposter syndrome. One of the things that tends to fuel it is knowing the fact that you're playing it and you're performing at such high stakes. You know, the risks are quite high, so there's such a greater fall, or such a bigger drop to take if something doesn't work out okay. You know, the consequences can be quite significant. So that almost fuels you know questioning and what do I really deserve to be here? Um, and so yeah, they can coexist. And what I tend to look to try and do with clients is take the best parts of both of those and help the client really understand and learn how to recognize that, you know, each parts of the way that they look at themselves, their self-perception. Some of it's good and some of it's not so good. So it can be healthy, but then also not necessarily as healthy. So um, with imposter syndrome, definitely the comparisons is is usually a very, very strong feature or characteristic of, you know, it's that being there. And I sort of uh, encourage people to look at it, you know, when they're making comparisons. I mean, sometimes people talk about it, it's like, oh, you should never make comparisons. It's like, mm. it's not a black or white sort of way that we – taking that black or white perspective is actually not so helpful because in order to improve, you need to make comparisons against people who are qualified to give you feedback that's going to help you. So I encourage people to learn and teach, work with clients to try and teach them how to work along a continuum of, Okay, your ego is important, like that's great, but the difficulty is is um, the ego also it can be a lot more destructive. So if I've got someone who is actually able to isolate and use the ego to say, yeah, hey, look, you know what, I don't really care too much about what other people think. This is where I'm going to go and it's going to work for me. Great. I'll take, I'll say, how do we look to try and, you know, bottle that? How do we take the essence of that and use it to your advantage? But then I'm also in sort of the, I'm sort of in the passenger seat clients always in the driver's seat but trying to point out to them hey look you know what there's there's, there's a bit of a danger here uh, I think that we've got to look at how we manage and you know set some boundaries around this and identify when it's not going to be so helpful to you so they definitely can coexist they often always coexist and, and none of them are ever mutually exclusive it's about trying to fine-tune getting the best balance of both for the client um, and working to that end and helping them be able to recognize that in themselves yeah yeah, because this is something that I imagine um, in high performance areas in all industries, people struggle with ego and you probably see narcissistic personalities and all those type of things. Um, and uh, it's interesting that you say sort of healthy versus unhealthy because there's got to be a fine line, right? Like how do you know when you're going over the other way, you know? There always is. Oh, look, that's a hard one. It's Once again, that's one of those how long is a piece of string. And I, I always say to people, um, I get, I, when I'm doing mental health shops, uh, workshops, I get asked this quite a bit. So, okay, how do you know? And I said, look, first of all, it's not a question I'm ever going to answer to a group and say this is what it looks like because you just can't, that, that's an invalid answer. If anyone ever does that, it's like, oh. But it's more I'm looking at the individual and saying, look, in terms of your level of functioning, 
and the way in which you need to show up and perform and be in your world. Um, what what are the mitigating factors here? What what are the risks and what are the thresholds? What do they look like for you? So when it comes to talking about what's normal and what's good and what's not so good, it really comes down to me stepping into the client's world and saying, what actually is working for you and actually what is the way in which you're continuing to operate in this pattern, but it's actually not serving you and it's actually hurting you. So when they start to develop that self-awareness at that point, then they're starting to make their own judgments about it. But with my help, I'm looking to facilitate and guide. And I guess a process I tend to use is something called motivational interviewing, and that's helping to look at different pathways of the choices that they make or how they're showing up to help them identify what those thresholds need to be. Um, clients always make their own decision. That's the difficulty. Um, so it's about respecting that, but then also helping them to develop and learn, okay, what actually is the fine line here? Um, ultimately, I mean, you, you might experience it in friendships, and I'm sure we've, people listening probably have experienced like, oh, God, I've, I've got this friend or I've got someone where I say to them, if you keep doing this, this is going to hurt you or it's, it's going to work out poorly or, you know, it's, it's going to just end up being the same old, same old. And one of the hardest parts I think sometimes can be as, you know, caring friends or relatives and, you know, even as therapists is you can see that someone sometimes is going to proverbially walk off a cliff. But it's about how do we exercise the ability to hold the space for them, knowing that they're going to walk off a cliff and anticipating and learning as best we know them as friends or relatives, how is it going to impact them emotionally, mentally? And how do we have to be that that person that can be supportive if we choose to be supportive as well? So it's it's a bit of a hard one. It's it's, it's not a, a complete definitive answer to that. It really is going to be different from one person to the next. And also depending on what they're going through and how they're growing or not growing <laughs> as a person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's so individual, you know, in terms of people's personality and their situation. And there's not really going to be a clear-cut answer, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to say that it is. I think, you know, if, if anyone comes up with the answer to that billion, trillion dollar question, fantastic. But in all honesty, I don't think there is. There's not a pure black and white to that. Um, it's going to be assessing quite a few different things before you come to a decision or you help the client come to a decision as to what that, that fine line is. Yeah, and I guess like what you're talking about before, sort of like the um, not just treating people when they come in with problems, but actually trying to... Um, make them better from the baseline you know like is that sort of you know can you get people coming in and then sort of as, try and mitigate this stuff before it happens you know is that something that you do uh, yes definitely definitely I guess uh, the approach I mean all us all practitioners will take a you know they apply their own personal approach professionally speaking and also you know their, their personal flair of that when they're working with people my approach is always usually uh, let's actually look at what the current state of play is and, uh, you know, I look to just listen to what the client's ex experience is. Existentially, I want to know, okay, how, what's your world like? How are you operating in that as well? And so my brain goes ticking at a 1,000 miles per hour going, okay, let me see what's actually working patterns here. What are some automatic things you're not conscious of here? So anyway, but, um, but with that then it is a lot of the time I'm looking to try and understand, you know, what are the, what are the main priorities that they're coming to me with as well? and how they're being impacted. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, because of how things are here in, oh, look, I won't just say, you know, it's necessarily Australia, but people come when they're really, really down in, the, really, really far down. You know, they wait till things are really, really, unfortunately, you know, in a really, really poor place. And then by the time they get to me, they're usually scrambling. It's going, oh, my God, please, you know, whatever you can do to help me fix this, let's turn this around. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, sometimes if we've had a whole lifetime of, you know, certain behaviours and patterns happening. Some of those changes are not necessarily going to happen straight away. Um, 
So it, it is about definitely trying to help them learn how to experience some things that help them ground to really come to terms with what what has brought them to this point. Um, if that awareness and their capacity to do that, great. If not, I don't look to try and help them develop that capacity because if it's just not there, it's not there. Then it's about trying to help them experience whatever the next best experience would be past what they're currently at. So it's really about managing expectations, if that makes sense. So if, for example, I have a, um, quite a, a suite of clients who, you know, they're experiencing major depressive episodes or that's part of feature of their sort of psychopathology. So, look, you know, look at borderline, not borderline, but well, borderline personality disorder um, and then also borderline, uh, sorry, bipolar disorder. They've got features of, you know, significant bouts of depression that can be there. So, you know, with that, then a lot of them people say, I just want this to stop, which I totally get and appreciate it. It's, it can be hard sometimes. You hear and you sense the pain of, you know, this ongoing anguish that they're experiencing, you know, day-to-day level and a moment-to-moment level. And a lot of the time the focus needs to be around just how do we get you from feeling a little bit better from where you're currently at? You know, there's a long-term prognosis of, well, prognosis is not necessarily great with these two types of disorders, but it's a journey. It's about helping them recognise, okay, we are actually on a journey here and the next best step in the journey, what could it actually look like and what would it actually feel like? Then when we've gotten to that step, now we can look at the next two. But there is going to be, it's going to be completely demotivating. Um, You know, psychopathology or not, completely demotivating for someone to be focusing their their eyes on the prize and the end point that is complete polar opposite to what they're currently experiencing without doing the groundwork in between and not highlighting to them there actually needs to be some groundwork that needs to be done before they get there. So a lot of a lot of the time I'm really helping to manage expectations um, when people come to, particularly if they haven't worked with a therapist before or they've had bad experiences with a therapist or a psychologist or, a, you know, whoever. So um, it's it's challenging but it's, it's also really rewarding when all of a sudden somebody goes, oh, yeah, okay, I see that that's got to happen. And all of a sudden the resistance, um, the pressure that they're, they're holding starts to to wane a little bit then we've got room to move then we've got capacity to now build the skills it's not holding so you know when they're holding emotionally and clutching so tightly because they are in such pain it's like oh i need to try and help them develop ways to loosen the grip a little bit then we've actually got some some breathing space and room to move yeah and like it sounds like you have to really help frame people's mind to think differently right when they're in such a dark place and then open them up to all these ideas and and that's a hard job yeah it is and it's I think it's um a lot of the time we tend to um and I don't want to necessarily generically say this I'm sort of saying this from observation you know when I'm doing mental health workshops and you know just through my years of experience and working in corporate and and all that sort of stuff and also as a private practice um, practitioner is I see quite a difference between um how men and women work and uh, men are much more apt I find, in my work, I'm sort of talking from that, and also in research does show this too, more apt to be looking at a solution-focused type approach. Now, what do I need to do to, to turn this around? What do I need to do that, to, to make things better or to, you know, to really do the pain or you know, to solve this? Um, women are much more akin to wanting to be able to share and to be able to you know, experience a level of empathy from someone else, and that's not necessarily problem-solving. So one of the big things I tend to illustrate in mental health workshops, because I see there's a blanket message that goes out there. It's like, oh, you know, you need to be able to, you know, demonstrate empathy. It's like, yeah, that's important. Um, but also recognise that it really depends on the individual that you're working with. So sometimes empathy is, is going to be potentially, once again, I don't want to sort of just, you know, blanket say that all women need to experience this first. Some are, you know, oh, let's just get in there. It's, you know, I'll, I'll figure out. I've got people I can do the empathy thing with. <laughs> what do I need to do to now solve this? So 
but they are there tends to be more of an uh, they're more akin to needing that or to experiencing a better benefit from that hormone imbalance actually is is more is is better established when women can do things in those ways um, pampering um, whether it's you know connecting with other people talking just sharing not looking to needing to be problem solved so I commonly hear with men, it's like, oh, you know, I'm trying to help her. I want to be able to, you know, t- what can I do for her? It's like she doesn't want any, you to do anything. She just needs you to be there as a listening. And that in itself is what you're doing for her. So you're actually doing something but not necessarily in the way that it feels comfortable for you. Um, men, you know, they, I, I tend to work with um, doing more what we call solution-focused type of work. So it's okay. Let's uh, let's recognize the way in which it's impacting you. Um, let's what what would it look like? What would it look like, and what would it feel like straight away? Okay, well, here's some action plans and here's some steps. Let's go away and let's see how you experience those and report back. And they're much more akin because there's a sense of ownership of oh, I'm doing something that feels I get to feel good. And their hormone balance, you know, helps to restore testosterone levels. Doing it that way too. Um, when it comes to having you know sort of self care time or you know managing that self regulating. Men and women are apt to do it differently. Not surprised by, you know, the whole man cave thing, completely in support of that. Not not at the detriment of, you know, compromising dynamics in a relationship um, and, you know, uh, uh, introducing avoidance <laughs> to escape. That's not what I mean. But more that quiet time that um, uh, I remember doing a workshop with uh, sort of like a concrete laying um, company um, Southeast Queensland company and, you know, the guys were full of room of, you know, sort of labourers. And I said, you know, how would you guys actually look to have these sorts of conversations with mates? And they sort of laughed. They said, oh, yeah. I said, you're not going to sit down and have a conversation. I said, you know, your wife might expect expecting you to do that. And they all rolled their eyes. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. I said, but you guys might, you know, you might go to a bar. You're going to go to a bar, sit beside each other and just sit there and watch the footy together. That's quality time. That's recalibration. You don't have to necessarily talk about it. But you all know, you know that there's a, a sense of comradeship. There's an unspoken understanding that both of you recognise. And nothing needs to be said. So it's about really, you know, really attuning things. So, yeah, even when we're sort of looking to try and impart, you know, how do you have mental health conversations, not one size fits all, not one size fits all. I just want to um, go back a step. You were talking about, you know, um, the balance of empathy and problem solving. Do, do you need both? Like, you know, for, say, men or people who are really specifically wanting to problem solve, do they also need um, a sense of empathy or like you know do they need to feel what they feel or is it just sort of like if if you just want to problem solve we're just going to problem solve look I mean we can do that I mean this is the thing if clients come to me I'll, I'll look to if I'm working one-on-one I'll, I'll give them that education and they say hey, look I've got to share with you from from my point of view it's probably going to be more beneficial um, I can and, and so once again it's about recognizing where the client's at and what they're open and willing to embrace and perhaps what they're they're not wanting to um, and I, I look at all of that, you know, if there's resistance, I look at that. So if they're not willing to, you know, say, oh, look, this empathy stuff is bullshit, I say, well, okay, well, fair enough, I can understand your your position. Um, but can I share with you my two cents worth and, you know, take that away and percolate on it? And I'll usually give them, um, depending on the way in which, you know, information I can see would land for them in order for them to receive it and take hold of it. If they're looking for facts and they're looking for some research, I'll give it to them. If they're looking for an explanation or a demonstration of, you know, a story as to how it actually works, then I'll give it to them. So I look to figure out what's going to be, you know, more influential to them in, in terms of what their experience is and what their needs are. Um, when it comes to actually working in a workplace, I and I'm working with a lot of leaders, you know, they're time-pressed. You know, consultants, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're clocking time on 10 to 15 increments. You know, time is money. Five minutes is is valuable. You know, it's gold to them. So I sort of say to them, you can't afford to. 
you can't afford to and please don't feel guilty of the fact that you can't sit down and have an hour with someone who you know needs to bore their eyes out I said no disrespect but that's that's not the role that you took on board you still want to be able to be that empathetic person and have ability to exercise having a, a mental health type of related conversation but this is the framework I give them and this is just something I came up with that it works really effectively is that you know law of threes the first sort of third of the time whether it's 20 minutes 10 minutes an hour the first set of that time is about the skill of letting that person share with you what they feel comfortable to share that person could be sitting there crying or they could be saying oh my god this is going as oh yeah okay so part of the skill is just acknowledging and validating and saying okay I can see what's going on that this is really hard for you and my goodness, what an impact. And genuinely so, you know, there's skills that we're not necessarily taught. So it's not about teaching someone to become a clinician, but there are some basic language skills that can really help someone feeling comfortable to share and also protecting the person who's a leader, who's not a therapist, to also have that conversation and feel comfortable that they're doing that their part, but they're not overstepping and, you know, sort of feeling all of a sudden now they're flooded with this and they don't know how to handle it going forward. So the first third is about just creating that space for that person to share as much as they feel comfortable or as little as they feel comfortable. The next then part is going, okay, well, this is what I think we can actually explore in terms of possible solutions. You know, are we actually at a point where we could do a little bit of that? And so you're sort of setting that that conversation at the outset. cycle. Like, well, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to definitely want to understand what's going on for you. Let's acknowledge and let's see what the state of play is here for you. Second part, what we're going to look to do is just explore some possibilities as to how this could help you, you know, what we could do to, to help you take whatever the next step needs to look like um, and how I can help, you know, be a resource in, in making that happen. The third part then is actually setting some commitment to some things to actually happen and then going, okay, this is my part. I'm going to go away and do this and make a phone call. Uh, in terms of protecting you, this is what we need to make sure of. Um, I'm going to check in with you. So it's, it's not even about problem solving straight then and there. It's about just saying, okay, what are the next steps that need to happen past this conversation? And it's not just having one conversation. Sometimes we need to have a couple. So it's just bit by bit by bit by bit, that becomes much more manageable, much more um, much more au fait with the work schedule that people need to be honouring. Um, it's more helpful to both parties as well and it also then helps the person who's suffering to develop their own sense of control and agency of being able to affect and control and, and, and improve what they're currently experiencing. So it's it's collaborative, you know, so it's not a, right, you need to go away and do all this sort of stuff. It's like, oh, the person's suffering as it is and now they've got to think about how they've got to turn it around. It's like, well, that's a lot of pressure. And so it's not a loaded conversation. It's more, let, let's just like, let's just get a state and let's get familiarity with what's actually going on here. Not even all of it, just parts of it to start off with. Um, and so it's skills to do that, but it's it's to fit work. Um, and I do that with clients as well. You know, I've got sort of 50 minutes that I'm working with them. So it's like, right, we've got, to, <laughs> we've got stuff to cover. Uh, and so it, it is about trying to do that. But that particular type of framework I find is particularly effective um, in workplace situations, particularly when you've got consultants, veterinarians that I'm working with as well. It's like you don't have time for that. Um, you know, you've, you're overloaded with cases as it is and your lunch hour is already taken up with two new cases. So good luck if you're going to have a chance to go to the toilet today. So it's um, that type of perspective is something that when it's a spoken way of having those sorts of conversations between employees and leaders, People know, people know what there is to follow and you can almost have an idea as to by the end of the conversation, things are going to start to look better than what they did before we started it. Yeah, I think that's a really great framework. I'm really glad that you sort of broke that down and made it really clear because I think people get really overwhelmed when other people come to them, you know, like you said, when they need empathy or they need problem solving. And a lot of people, um, you know, in high executive positions or you know, managing roles, they don't have these skills yet. 
and they don't want to. They don't want to either. And I, I, I look at them and I sort of say, you know, I, I appreciate that. They, they said, oh, my God, what if you don't want to? I said, you're absolutely entitled to feel that way. Don't feel guilty for feeling that you don't want to have these conversations. But unfortunately, part of your role is to be able to find a way to make space for some of that because you step part of being a leader now is you need to be able to d- develop some of those skills. But there are better ways that you can actually do it to protect yourself. So I'm often working with leaders to say there is a way in which you can learn to detach that you don't need to be taking this on board and feel okay that it's not all right for a whole hour to be lost in a day. Um, it's about helping upskill them to put those boundaries and set those parameters in place. It's like we can have the mental health conversations, but we're also in a workplace too. And the leaders also do have responsibility to manage the safety and well-being and the vicarious effect of what's going on with one person on the rest of the team. So that can be hard to manage and be across to, you know, that that breadth of and that, that scope of accountability. So I say, you know, for those reasons, you can't ignore the rest of your team for the sake of one person. I know that sounds really awful. And they're like, oh, God, that sounds good. I said, I oh, know, but... So you, you can't afford to, you know, you sort of look after one person, you're going to neglect the other as a result. So that it's about helping them find the balance as to how to do that. So it's tough. It's very tough. You know, being a leader these days is incredibly tough because um, they're doing, doing, and then they're managing, you know, interesting personalities and then how people are coping and, you know, incredible workloads that don't seem to be <laughs> relieving anytime. So it's like do more with less. Um, and at the moment that doesn't seem to be changing. Yeah. Sorry, just the size of the question. Um, when you know there's like culture shifts and stuff or like somebody seems to be um feeling differently in the team are there things that people in managing positions can do to sort of combat that or you know like maybe they notice the mental health of their team is declining as a whole you know there's certain things they can do to sort of boost morale Mm, i mean morale is probably not that thing that i'd be looking to do straight away it depends on what actually they're noticing is happening in their team so if you know people are feeling particularly overwhelmed and anxious it's going to be actually looking at what the reasons are, first of all, to discover why that's happening in the first place, particularly if the whole team's experiencing it. If you've got one person, you've got an idea that it's possibly uh, the way in which they currently you know, they operate in the world, they're going to be bringing some personal things to that, personal character traits and things um, that are affecting that. Um, that one person's sort of singled out as experiencing something unique that not everyone else is. So you'd be looking at it from that perspective. If it comes down to um, sort of what I was just saying before, if there's sort of a you know, if somebody's experiencing you know, a heightened level of anxiety or, you know, people are starting to take more days off work and, you know, needing mental health days, it's like, okay, there, there's something, there's a problem there as to why this is being caused. And so trying to boost morale is like, well, hang on, that's sort of just skirting over the fact that there's a real serious issue here that is probably needs to be addressed and solved. Um, so I'm sort of a little bit different. I'm saying, okay, that, you know, let's, not, let's not try to escape the fact that there's something that's going on here that is really causing detriment to your team you continue to do it. I mean, sometimes I've actually had to mitigate uh, businesses about, um, you know, helping them avoid uh, lawsuits. I know that sounds really terrible, but, you know, fair work cases. We've got to look at this. Um, it's in your best interest and in that person's best interest. And if you don't take care of this, first of all, there's, a, there's you know, there's a legal issue, but it's not that's not the primary thing. Um, sometimes I've had to see that to actually get them, get the management team to sit up and listen. Um, but then primarily it's about, okay, how we actually, how's the person experiencing this pain are you, is the management team a result? Is it directly something that's coming from you? And those conversations are not necessarily something that a person who's suffering can have with a management team, particularly if the management team is causing something. <laughs> so ways to do it is if, if there is an access point to, you know, and even smaller businesses, I sort of say consider getting in touch with and, and engaging with an EAP, an employee assistance program, or you've got a suite of psychologists or, you know, people outside of that. 
because they have to be objective. You know, the third parties, we can be objective. The conversations are confidential. Um, obviously, there are certain caveats to that, you know, looking at risk and harm, things like that. But um, the person then knows that they feel safe to be able to share what's actually going on with them. Um, when they're not, then, you know, the pain continues to happen. So it's about the first thing is going, how can we actually create a safe space for that person to be able to feel that they can, you know, access support if they choose to and if they feel that they need to. It's sometimes not necessarily about just sort of jumping to increase morale. Um, having said that, though, like looking at the other side of the coin is if we are looking to go, okay, what are some team dynamics? You know, things are a little bit stale. So I've got some new clients recently where it's like, oh, gosh, you know, they're now going through a merger or an acquisition. So they've gone from, a, you know, 2,000 strong sort of employee or team to now being 22,000 globally. Like that's happened in the space of like three months. I'm like, whoa, you've got big change management happening over the next 18 months and they're moving very fast. So it's about then going, okay, first of all, listening to people and asking them, what are their ideas? Uh, go back to the people and say, first of all, how are you being impacted? And what we would like to do is actually see if there's a way that we could transform this for you. Definitely keen to hear what your insights are around this. But please also know that we may not be able to necessarily action all of these at the one time or action some of them at all. We still want to respect the fact that you've got some valid input. We'd encourage you to, to, you know, to share your two cents worth. So go back to the people first. That's going to be one of the first things um, that is going to help people to be engaged. When you've got people who are engaged and they're interested in being part of the conversation and then they're looking to exercise effort to contribute, then you've got a possibility of introducing exercises where, you know, best interest is increasing morale. Um, but also then you're sharing the workload too. It's not just, oh, HR's got to come up with that or the manager's got to come up with that. It's like, no, 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 let the people be involved with that. Let them shape part of that culture as well. Let them get some have some decisions as to how they want to operate as a team going forward. That's always better. Collaboration, easier, more participative, better engagement. Everyone gets to own it and it just feels better. Yeah, I think that's a really strong thing, you know, getting people involved. You know, everyone mm. can acknowledge that something needs fixing and they can all work together on something. Yeah. That's really powerful. It is. And I think, you know, for leaders it's tough. So it's, it's, it's taking, it's actually starting to introduce the empowerment and the accountability for people. Is that teaching your employees to become leaders in their own right? It's like, you know, you want to change? Okay, that's great. Um, be part of the solution, not part of the problem. <laughs> it's a key phrase, key phrase I always say to Liz, like, you know, ask your people, see how they can actually, they've got a good grievance of strength, okay? Do they have any ideas? Have they thought further down the track? And so it's sort of helping leaders be better leaders, but, you know, the best, best I sort of think one of the best ingredients of, you know, effective leadership is how you are allowing your people to learn how to fish and presenting opportunities that help them to teach themselves how to fish. You can guide them by all means, but your job is not to, to give them all the answers. Give them the resources to find out the answers and, and be sort of, you know, their best, be them, their own masters of, of being, you know, change and being instrumental in that and being a part of enjoying that. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's not, it's not easy to do, but, yeah. When you bring those people, like what you were talking about before, I really liked that um, sort of the picture in my head of people being negative numbers and then coming to zero and then you being able to improve them. You know, when you bring people up to zero sort of like in a business setting, you know, what mental skills can you sort of teach people to help build them up so they're, you know, in, in the positive? Like how do you get there? 
Um, it, the first thing is going to be starting from re, a resetting of goals. So now that they're in a position where they're actually feeling relatively balanced or there's an eagerness and a willingness and a motivation, oh, I should sort of say inspiration. Motivation is an interesting word. But, you know, they're feeling more inspired to start look at possibilities. It then comes down to goal setting. So goal setting, I know that, you know, the common adage out there, and I think there's, you know, every man and his dog who likes to teach goal setting talks about the SMART progress. That's that, that, that acronym, you know, specific, measurable, I think it's attainable, or I, I like to use the word adjustable, you know, flexibility. So I, I've, I've changed that myself. So specific, measurable, achievable or adjustable, um, what's that, realistic, you know, um, so managing expectations and also obviously having a time frame in that because, you know, you can't just, how long is a piece of string that, that's never going to get done. So there is that, but I think that the key thing that's actually often missing is people are not, they're not aware that the fact that there needs to be an emotional connection on some level for them individually to whatever it is that they possibly are looking to step towards. So, you know, I've got people who come to me and say, oh, you know, I'm interested in doing some life coaching. I'm like, yeah, great. Okay. Uh, what sort of direction are we heading in? Do you have any sort of sense of that? And they've got no idea whatsoever. I said, okay, we've got to look to see how do we actually even start to recognize what is it that's possibly going to take your fancy? Um, and so they're looking for a plan straight away. How do I do this? I'm like, yeah, it's like, how do you feel this? And so people are very out of touch. They're looking at the stuff. They're looking at the things that they can tangibly see. They're looking for the monitoring, um, you know, the feedback on paper or what that's going to look like. They're looking for the trophy. You know, they're looking for symbol. And I'm like, that's great. But, you know, how connected to that are you? So um, a lot of the time it's goal setting to help people test Test and play. It's an experimental time, I say to them. I said, now you're in a different position, a little bit more available to you. I said, I encourage you now to be a little bit cheeky and perhaps step a little, go a little bit left field and side field. If there are things that you've, you know, thought about experimenting with or looking to, I said, do you feel that, you know, we can put part of that in now? Personal and professional. So it's um, then checking and saying, you know, with the things that they're looking to aim towards, I sort of say two things. First of all, in terms of your level of, self-belief or self-efficacy in other words how much belief do you have in the possibility of you being able to achieve that goal give me a zero or give me a rating from zero to ten you know ten is being yeah really really yep uh, totally oh absolutely you know it's a matter of time i reckon i could do it but there are a few obstacles like yeah um zero is being like no the second question then is how emotionally connected are you to this what is the level of desire how emotionally does it how, how does this emotion resonate with you so they're like mm, I said, go, go again, you know, zero to 10. Now you times, you multiply those two. If you've got someone whose self-efficacy or self-belief is like a five and then their level of desirability to actually get it done is like one. Okay, so times that by five times one is like five. Out of 100, that's very low. So the chances of that person, do you see what I'm getting at? So the chances of that person actually experiencing any level of satisfaction or making any sort of progress towards that goal is very minimal. So I actually use that process to reflect back to people when we're doing any sort of goal setting. It's like, eh. but it's not even just looking at it once. I say, I want you to go back over the next couple of weeks, once a week, keep looking at these. I don't want you to think too much about them. I just wanted to check in with yourself. What is the consistency of this here? Are the numbers still the same? Or are you now starting to come to terms with the fact that you've set a goal that you have actually no real emotional interest? There's no desire. When it comes to what predicates our behavior and our decision-making, um, Despite popular belief, think people will say, oh, I need all the facts and the figures and whatever. Nah. At the end of the day, there's going to be something emotionally that says, tick, I feel comfortable enough and safe with what's in front of me. I'm going to go in that direction or I'm not going to go in that direction. So it's actually using that premise and that natural phenomenon of actually how we, we 
you know, how we work, how show up in life and the choices that we make and whether we follow through with something or not, using that and developing that self-awareness and applying that to your goal setting. So I sort of use that across, you know, if anyone's ever done any coaching, so I'm assuming, you know, some of your clients are probably really highly interested in coaching and that, you know, that service that you guys do. So, you know, really taking that wider perspective, looking at, let's look at the physical aspects of things. So, you know, with the work that Greg does, you know, in terms of personal training, it's like, okay, let's actually really have a look at that. And it's a great thing for personal trainers too, I think, as well, when they're doing that with clients. It's like, you know, the attrition usually after the first three months. So it's actually looking to build and say, okay, let's actually have a look at these goals. How emotionally are you connected to this? Let's build that. And where I come in is I'm actually actually trying to help that person crystal ball. So this is where imagery comes in. I want you to step into practicing connecting with that on an emotional level and teach them how to do that. And let's revisit that a few times. Self-monitor, self-check, let's confer, let's collaborate. Where is it really at for you? As a result, then we start to find that people are really rechecking or recalibrating or pivoting what it is that their goals really are representative of. It's not necessarily about the stuff. It's the experience that people have of the steps of progress along the way. Eventually, you step through those. Ta-da, there's your trophy at the end. <laughs> so it's, you know what I mean? So it's a little bit different. So, you know, people say, oh, I really want to achieve that or I want a certain amount of money or I want to have a lifestyle that looks like this. I'm like, hey, let's, 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 can we just reverse plan that a little bit? What would it mean to you if you actually have that? What is it going to give you? And they're like, oh. I'm like, okay, we need to explore that a little bit more. So once again, that's sort of awareness, but really sort of helping people understand that there is actually a, an emotional attunement that a lot of us are not taught how to use to our advantage, particularly when it comes to goal setting, but also understanding why there are things that we are resistant to, things that we are more resonant to. Um, you know, people that we gel with, people that we don't gel with. So it's it's really recognizing the emotions, that whole full suite, the physical symptoms of of you know the feedback as to you know whether we're doing well or whether we're not. That feeling of flow. There's a um, a psychologist who's pretty well renowned, Dr. Adam Fraser in WA. You know, he sort of talks about flow, um, and he sort of explains it quite quite well. And so he talks about you know how do people get in that? It's actually really people getting a, a the right combination of the physical stuff, the signs and the symptoms, and knowing how to to orchestrate that in conjunction with understanding their emotion, so emotional intelligence too, but also their thought processes and knowing currently how they're working by default, sort of restructuring and reframing that, testing to see how it feels. It will feel awkward, unfamiliar, and really starting to turn it into now like a really finely tuned harmonious orchestra where you're starting to pull and, you know, you call on your wind section and you, you, know, you, you start to recognise, okay, what emotions are absent here? The satisfaction that I'm not getting for some reason. Okay, there needs to be a bucket of mine that needs to be filled in some other way because that needs not being met. I need to strategically look at how I do that. So it's um, it can be quite come fascinating. But yeah, the sort of the emotional side of things is it's, as much as it people look to try and avoid. It's like oh no, you've got a whole full suite of negative emotions that are guiding lights. They are actually some of the the golden stuff that is really telling people to change direction because the course that they're on is not healthy for them and it is not the right one for them. Client makes a decision though. So it's um, it's quite fascinating when people have some of those aha moments, they're really starting to learn how to be attuned. And the decisions, the decision-making and setting up becomes very, very easy for them. And because of that, clarity starts to come a lot faster for them as well. Um, so it's quite powerful. It can be quite powerful, yeah, in terms of that. Wow. Yeah. That's, I'm learning so much from you in this conversation. I feel like we could talk about this stuff all day. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> Indeed. Um, I'm so wrapped up in it. Yeah. And especially about goal setting, like you said, in my industry, you know, we do a lot of fitness. Um, you know, I do a lot of corporate fitness, but also um, 
coaching one-on-one and this goal setting stuff you know we learned in uni smart goals you know make sure everyone's got these you know measurable time specific goals but you're right what's actually important is meaning you know it is it is and meaning that makes sense to the person yes yeah and I think um I'd love to take that into my own practice as well and then you know when I'm talking to other PTs and more junior PTs and stuff I think that's going to go a long way so thank you for that insight I feel like that's blown my mind today (laughs) yeah no I'm glad and you know for listeners who are are sort of listening to that it's like there's a new wave of um because of the demand that we're all living with you know everyone everyone's wanting to we we can see that there's possibilities to do more experience more and have more and so you know I'm not it's not about saying to people hey you know what don't focus on getting that really nice car or you know having the Maserati of your dreams or anything It's, it's not about that either it's not denying yourself that and saying that that's wrong it's not about judgment about any of that it's more about really connecting with, like you said, I think that word was great. What is the meaning? What is the meaning that this has for me in a way that is going to get me to feel good and help me move further towards experiencing a better quality of life, better quality relationships, and experiencing life more fulfilled, more in a more fulfilling fashion? You know, how do I get more personal satisfaction out of this um, in my relationships with other people from, you know, whatever years I've got remaining on the planet in this lifetime? And I think for particularly if you're working with younger people as well, learning how do you can actually gauge that you know that people are not necessarily for want a better way they're not tarnished <laughs> hopefully uh, by too much workplace trauma and things like that so you know they're still in those early phases I sort of really want to encourage particularly people who are younger to learn how to identify what that is for them connect with them and to not lose that childhood innocence that's one of the things that I'm always I'm trying to always build in with the adults that I work with is like I need to try and work with them to, or I'm, lo- I'm looking to try and work with them to, to tap into that childish innocence, that playfulness, that's creativity. And, you know, in being leaders, that needs to be, that's what injects the fun in, in adult workplace relationships. That's what takes businesses forward. That's what takes people, you know, experiencing better levels of performance. That's what expands people's potential. The world needs more of that. There's only one of, of, of unless you're an identical twin, even then, you know, there's differences between you and, you know, your twin, but there's only one of us. So, you know, we have a unique blend of so many different possibilities and so many different, you know, skills and talents and, and you know, possibilities to stretch your mind as to what we're going to do to contribute to, you know, the world or just to experience a better quality of life that's going to have a flow-on effect positively on other people that, you know, that we're in touch with. So it's, I always say to people, you know, can, we want to look to see how we can help people connect with that as much as possible. The world doesn't need more clones. What we need is more um, people using their own in uniqueness to add more more colour, more enriched experience of work, more enriched experience of, you know, supporting each other, more enriched experience of expanding upon ideas and doing things differently. So, you know, it's definitely embracing individuality as much as possible and helping people, you know, use some sort of key mental skills and toolkit to go, don't lose sight of that. Here are some skills to help you make sure that you build that in. But also I think it's, you know, their life skills um, that I think always should be taught as early as possible to to help people self-regulate. There's going to be trauma. There's going to be trauma. There's going to be stuff that you don't like. There's always going to be people that you come up against. They're learning experiences, but they're also quite traumatic as well at the same time. Um, and so it's about helping to equip people to, you know, develop their own toolkit depending on what they choose that they want to go towards. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so happy that I got you on this podcast to talk about this stuff because I think, it's so relevant right now, especially we're talking more about mental health. We're getting, you know, people are trying to do better at work and they're just trying to come back up to baseline and this stuff is so Absolutely. 
Yeah, there's a lot of people that are really suffering. You know, I hear so much um, and it's only getting worse. You know, it's only getting worse. And I think part of that is there's there's stigma around it. There still is. There always will be, I think, for some time. There's also cultural influences. So there are many variables that are actually influencing um, people experiencing mental health decline. It's about us, um, you know, in the capacity that we're in, you know, depending on what workplace while we're in. It's not about saying, hey, everybody needs to learn how to do this. But it's like, oh, you look, we could, but also you get to exercise the choice. Um, and I think the best way is to go, okay, well, in terms of the, how I need to show up in life and also the ways in which I need to be influential to other people and other people are, you know, influenced or, or I am influenced by other people and how I influence them, what is the way in which, you know, an improvement in mental health could be of benefit in my unique situation? So as much as I'm definitely all in support of things like, you know, the Are You OK Day and sometimes, you know, people put um, posts, on, uh, posts on Facebook of, you know, copy and paste is to reach out and let people know that I'm here and I'm supporting. It's like, you know what, it's great, but it's also token. So I mean, don't disrespect to those campaigns because they do ignite an awareness, but it, all of a sudden it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. So when you talk to that word that you use, I think, Ali, meaning, it's really coming down to uh, seeing if there's space. That, well, consciously, we have to start deliberately doing it, but how do we look to make a little bit more space as it's relevant to you and your current circumstances? to make an improvement if it needs to be there yeah. and looking at what needs to fit me in my current circumstances, not one size fits all. And when you keep it close, it becomes less exhausting. It becomes more meaningful and you're much more likely to be able to experience a real change that makes a benefit for you and obviously those that you're affecting immediately around you. That's how it happens, you know, small changes over time. It's like that pay it forward process, you know, it's, someone buys one person a cup of coffee, okay, that, that's like, okay, that person says, what do I do to pay you back? It's like, oh, don't, pass it on to the next person. Small, little and often, that's the way that we're going to change, you know, we're going to create legacies um, and, and long-term improvement. But mass sort of marketing, it's like it's great, but we know it's, you know, that's what marketing is like. Here today, gone tomorrow. You know, it's, it's repeated touch points and that's a lot of effort and a lot of work. So it's like, you know, take it, take it back to really just bring it back to base, bring it back to home, you know, and just start from there. Just start from there. Don't worry so much about everything else that's going on there. It's like, we need to do this grandiose thing. It's like, yeah, look, if you can, great. If you're a business and you can, wonderful. But if you're an individual that is not necessarily connected to those things, it's like ju just keep it relative exactly to what is, you know, your sphere of influence and what you're on the receiving end of and, and also what you what you influence. That's where it's going to matter the most for you and just keep it there um, and expand on it as you feel you want to. That's great. Yeah, really good tips there. I really like what you said about having relative influence and, um, you know, as people go out in the world and we try to help other people and we try to give good information and, and blast things out, it's overwhelming. And I think what you say about relative, like how much influence do you really have and how much can you impact, it's probably, you know, not as much as you would like, but just be relative. That sort of takes a bit of the overwhelming part out of it. It's true. And also project, not projecting. So not, not looking to force it on other people as well. So, I mean, I've got friends who, who are well-meaning and because I'm a psychologist, I think, you know, they, they, <laughs> they think that I should be across, you know, the mass promotions and all that sort of stuff. I say, oh, look, God, was it mental health week? Sorry, I totally <laughs> forgot. <laughs> I've got, you know, busy week of clients. I've got some other things I've got to do. I'm, you know, I'm writing something, I'm doing some copywriting for a client overseas in the US, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's like, um, but, uh, you know, people, they copy those posts. And I say, look, I acknowledge it. I think it's a great gesture. I said, for me, I'm not going to copy and, and, and do this post because I said, I know for me it's going to be easily here today and gone tomorrow. I said, what I'm actually going to do today is I'm actually going to be two people that I know that I've been meaning to contact for some time and I haven't done it. 
So thank you very much. I'm actually going to put, reach out to those people today and say, hey, look, when are you free for a catch-up? When can we have a Zoom call? Or we haven't had a coffee for a while. When are we going to do it? That's where it starts. So it's the action. It's the actual taking the step and actually doing some sort of action. And for me, that's it was on my cards. So it's about looking once again. Yeah, that's for me, that's an example of how it's relative to me. And it actually has a flow-on effect. So it's the action that is, is, is what is important, not necessarily just the, oh, let's just put a blanket sort of chain mail message out there. I'm not one for chain mail at all, and I actually stop it dead in its tracks. So anyone, if you think you've ever sent me chain mail, don't even consider it because I'm going to delete it. Delete, delete, block, block, block is what I tend to do. <laughs> it's not a – that's my mantra for that. It's like, no, nah, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, are they your um, are they your psych skills? Delete, delete, block, block, block. <laughs> no, no, that's a personal thing. We were never taught about doing any of that either. I think people tend to laugh about it though, because I'm like, oh, that's that's a Hellenism. That's just one of my strategies. You know, take it or leave it as as it suits, and it may work for you. But notice that there can be consequences <laughs> that people might not like being on the receiving end of when they realize, oh, actually, I've I've been deleted and I've been blocked. And you know, I'll, I'll go back to that person. I'll say, why? So look, I asked you not to send me this stuff. And you have, I can't afford to have this taking up my newsfeed, so I've just deleted the block. Happy to re-engage, but if you do it again, I'm off. So, you know, I'm setting the boundaries there, you know, respectfully so, and, you know, explaining, giving my rationale. But once again, it, it is, it's about putting a stop to, for me, for, it's about putting a stop to some of that stuff that is sometimes the mass marketing that doesn't actually go anywhere. So don't look to put energy into that. Put energy into the stuff where you know it, it is actually going to affect someone. And someone feels it and they get the quality experience. They get far more quality experience in an exchange of feeling empathy cared for by someone said, hey, I haven't been in touch with you for a while. I haven't spoken to you in six months. Oh, my goodness. And I know it's great when we, you know, we catch up. It's like it was yesterday, but it hasn't happened. When can we do it? Let's do it. Great. And literally for me, it's scheduled. So I don't have open-ended, you know, hour long, you know, three hours long. It's like 30 minutes. Tell me what's going on. So if people know, you know, that I'm busy and so I explain to them parameters and set that up with them. It's like, I'm really keen to talk. I've said, oh, definitely, let's do it again, but let's not leave it so long. So I actually schedule it. I schedule it in the calendar. I go, it's time to have a catch-up. Um, once again, females are more likely to do it. For guys, I say, when's your next time you're going fishing? When are you going to the football next? You know, when are you doing that stuff? Is it, you know, when are you getting having a bit of a boys weekend? Is that, is that on the cards? No, I said, oh, it's time to do it. Um, business owners as well, I'm saying to them, you know, in order for them to be better performers, uh, I say, you, know, you haven't had, when was the time you actually took some time out? I said, I don't mean necessarily, you know, completely step away from your business because sometimes people can't do that and that actually can create more stress. So there's, there's definitely clear research that shows um, in, so I think it came from Switzerland or um, one of the Scandinavian countries. There's more of that coming through where it says it's actually better for people, particularly in their high-performing roles, don't necessarily look to take massive chunks of holidays. This is very jarring. You know, you're, you're hanging out, first of all, for when you go away. But my God, is it tough to come back to work and pick up the momentum. You're going from zero to 100. That's not healthy and it's hard to do. <laughs> Plus, you feel more resentment. You know, you have that massive fatigue now because of that jarring effect of coming back straight away. So sort of say, you know, as often as you possibly can, if you can do it in your business or, you know, as a leader, great. Go and take a big, you know, holiday, a couple of blocks of weeks in a year or whatever. But little and often, if you can do a three-day weekend, where you you know you might part of it might be yes look I can check her emails on a couple of days but I'm only going to do it to a certain degree and that's all I'm allowed to do while I'm away so I'm sort of still in touch with it I feel less stressed instead of that way as opposed to completely cutting off um, or you know the complete cut off for three days might be right but it's you know three days every three months perhaps or every six weeks or every eight weeks 
not necessarily let's just wait for that annual holiday where we go away for, for three weeks. I'm not saying it's bad. It's, it's about recognising what your rhythm is but also being cognisant of how you actually need to transition yourself back into work as well. So it's, it's rhythms. It's all, I look at it as waves, you know, gentle waves of holidays and breaks coming through. Um, and I can spot it when I'm working with clients, you know, business owners at the moment and entrepreneurs who are in startups and so they're running like a steam train. I'm like, you, I said, you, you guys have got to learn to do this strategic daydreaming. It was called constructive daydreaming. There's a guy named Serini Pillay, he's a psychiatrist out of Harvard Business University um, or Harvard Business School, and talks about, I love the way he pitches it, constructive daydreaming. Let your mind wander. Create time in your day where you need to literally do deliberate mind wandering. But it's directed. It's not about looking to try and necessarily come up with a solution straight away, but it's, it's sort of exercising that constructive daydreaming. Some people call it procrastination. I'm like, when it's directed towards something, it's not purposeful. So, you know, whether it's three days every so often to go away and do some constructive daydreaming, you're still working on your business, but you certainly don't have uh, connection with the, the everyday stresses that are having you constantly putting out fires and, and taking too many, too many energy units away from you. Yeah, that's great. But before I let you go, I want to go through a quick fire round with you. All right, so first question. If you could change someone's mind about something, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Are we talking about in a psychological capacity? Or sort of, I guess, in the, okay, in the theme of what we're talking about today, so we're talking about you know, sort you of like, mental skills yeah. and you know, psychology for high performance. Negative, negative emotions are just as important as positive ones. They have as much value as positive ones. We were born with the full spectrum and range of emotions, human emotions, for a reason. It's about just learning how to use them to your advantage. They are all telling you something. They are all signposts to something. They have value to help make your life better. So that's what I would want to change someone's mind about something. Yeah, that's and that's quite controversial, right? Most people think they want to suppress those things. Oh, I like that. Yes, indeed. So the unicorns, pots of golden rainbows, that's my trademark phrase, by the way. The unicorns, pots of golden rainbows, you know, despite that sort of common, uh, you know, media, mass media, oh, it's about being happy and positive all the time. Uh, from where I sit, uh, from a personal level as well as professional, it's a load of BS. Um, in fact, most of this, the most therapeutic work is about teaching people how to embrace that side of their emotions, learning how to come to terms with what they actually mean, um, reducing resistance to them. And as a result of doing so, it's like, my goodness, there is so much more um, value that comes with how they then learn to turn their lives around or, you know, turn their current circumstances around that are particularly traumatic. Yeah, so that would be probably one thing, I think, just as a psychologist. That would be my legacy until the day that I, you know, finish this lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All right. So let's go. Second question. What are you excited about right now in relation to mental health and well-being? I'm seeing more men embrace uh, taking care of their mental health, but in a, um, in a practical way. I had some really enlightening conversations with um, some, some very, some, some incredible um, IT sales consultants. So these guys are international salespeople. They have different regions and markets across the planet uh, for a, a, a large global sort of IT organisation they work for. And so I was doing it with them and I was like, how do you manage your mental health? Now, these guys were really embracing um, what it was to actually look after your mental health as a man. They were, we had some incredible conversations about breathing techniques and particularly Wim Hof and what that meant and the, the, looking at the physiology of how that actually impacted them. So 
I love the way that men are now starting to step into embracing the way that makes sense to them of how to have conversations around managing their mental mental well-being as a man, not just, I guess what I was saying earlier in the podcast, not just having a one-size-fits-all as to how we have mental health conversations. You know, there's one way that works for women. There's different ways that work for men, I'm finding. And so we had probably, I think I had one woman, one woman in the room when I was doing this workshop. There's like 25 people, one woman in the room. The rest of them were men. And the conversation was very, very different. And it just, we went down a rabbit's warren. They said, oh, what about this? You know, what the physical thing? And so we started to talk about the physiology and the experience of it. And that was much more impactful and enlightening to them. So if, if and I think what's really exciting me right now is that and the fact that they're also, um, because they're embracing that, they're starting to experience the benefits and then they're learning how to have the conversations around it in a way that makes sense to them. So that's really powerful because, you know, we do have that, um, it's like, oh, you know, I guess it's whether it's a, a generational thing, you know, older generational thing, so oh, don't talk about it, suck it up, buttercup, take a teaspoon of cement. <laughs> so, you know, and that's quite a common thing here in Australia or, um, you know, not admitting, you know, wearing it as a badge of pride. Ah, oh, you know, I'm okay. I'll just, you know, I'll just get through it. You know, you just push through. And they're starting to go, ah, oh, no, you know, that actually, that actually is, is holding us back by doing that. So they're starting to see and monitor the experiences that they're having on a positive level. When they do actually take time out to do things a little bit differently, like, oh, my goodness, the ideas that came, I felt better, I felt more energised, I was having different conversations and it actually felt easier and I actually was able to do more than what I thought I could. So for them, achievement is obviously a key thing for that particular um, group that I was working with. So that, that I think, is really exciting, seeing more and more men and how they're doing it. That's incredible. I'm loving watching that. Yeah, and I'm learning from it. It's teaching me to 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 you know more about how we as women need to embrace a different that men might do it a very very different way. We need to learn how to do that and 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 accommodate that. Mm, so that's exciting. Um. All right. So tell me a book or podcast or resource that you would recommend, or maybe something that you're really enjoying. <gasps> oh, oh no, this is a tough one. Now. Is it for me or is this possibly for your audience Whatever that would be listening? Got. I like all the recommendations. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go for a little bit of a left field one. And the reason being is because for anyone who's listening who's a leader or a business owner and you have to manage people, there is a therapeutic framework called Internal Family Systems that is incredible and is increasing in popularity with people who are in these sorts of leadership positions across the planet. The reason being is because it's not just about pure therapy. It's about helping to self, uh, to increasing self-awareness of, um, how do I explain this? Making the most of recognising that we have usually at least a couple of streams of consciousness happening at the same time. So if you've ever had conflict in your mind where you have a voice, not necessarily, I'm not talking about hallucinations, you know, hallucinations or delusional thinking or multiple personalities. That's that's no, that's not it. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But you have a voice in your head that sort of says, okay, you should do this, but the other one says, oh, but. So you've got that conflict, that inner conflict. So internal family systems is an incredible framework where we learn how to use those voices to our advantage because sometimes they come through quite punitively. You know, we've got self-talk that says, oh, you know, you shouldn't have done this and you need to do better than this and you know you shouldn't. So we, we hear that and it can be quite damaging. It can be quite sort of self-deflating and derailing for us. You know, it stops us in our tracks and stops us from achieving things that we're wanting to do. So we start to learn how to embrace that voice. We start to recognise that it actually is showing up and is there serving us for a purpose and a reason to protect us and to keep us safe. As we learn how to collaborate that, we start to use it to our advantage. You know, there are times where we actually need that harsh voice to go, come on, you're just about to talk in front of people. You know you've got the goods. You know that if you don't do that, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's, I'm sort of not explaining that particular part well, but 
it's learning how to not necessarily silence the voices but listen to them and make 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 friends with them and then being able to learn how to orchestrate them to come in when they're needed and when they're not and in a way actually really really helps to increase that feeling of flow and energy through challenging situations where these voices are likely to come in and you're going to feel oh my god I don't know what where to go can really help to improve experiencing um, levels of anxiety towards things that we're feeling really uncomfortable or resistance towards and also really incredible in terms of noticing what those things could be in other people that you lead. So when you start to recognise different, we sort of refer to them as sub-personas or parts, you recognise those showing up in other people. And sometimes you can start to learn how to have those transparent conversations with, you know, the people that you lead. It's like what's showing, what's coming up for you? Okay, what do we know in terms of the way in which this particular way of thinking is serving to protect you? So you're actually helping the person you know, take ownership, I guess, of recognising that even though they've got this going on, they actually still can manage through this, whatever the challenge might be, whether it's work-related or something personal that's going on that's affecting their ability to work or perform too. So Internal Family Systems is a great book. Um, I haven't got the title in front of me. It's, uh, I think it's just called Internal Family Systems. Um, it is a little bit sort of on the psychology side, but it's, it's written for someone who's not a therapist. It's not full of jargon or lingo. You know, it's not full of clinical terms. It's actually a really interesting read. Um, and it's quite fascinating. And I think a lot of people will go, oh, my gosh, that is so what goes on in my head. Perhaps a little bit different for men than women, but a lot of women, I think, will reason and go, oh, my gosh, that resonates so much. But if you don't have to silence the voices or resist them or try and push them away, it's like, no, 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 they're there for a reason. This is how you make friends with them and realise what's actually possibly why they developed in the first place. So um, it's by an author, uh, I think it's uh, Margaret Sweeney and Richard or Dick, I think it's what Richard on there, Richard Schwartz and I think Margaret Sweeney. They're the co-authors of that one, Internal Family System. So that's a fascinating one that I'm reading at the moment that I love. Um, so good one. I, I, I thought I'd choose that because it's, it's something I'm, I'm, you know, I just love reading that and it's, it's part of a framework that I use. But it's also something really popular now for people who are really want to take their leadership to the next level. So it's, it's, this is beyond, you know, just reading, no disrespect to Dan Goleman, but re, it's beyond some of that emotional intelligence stuff that's being, you know, that's been really sort of mass marketed at the moment. This is now really embracing it, really mastering self-regulation and, and being able to use it in a performance context as well. Really, really powerful. Yeah, that's a great resource, I think. I really like that recommendation. I might have a look at that myself. Thanks for that. Okay. Um, next question I have for you, um, a mental health hack or a health hack, something you always do? Oh, my goodness. Okay. So if, if people are unaware of this, your mood is highly impacted by music. On a very, very subconscious level, mood is, is so influenced by music and what you hear in that level that it can really give you a shift that could take you from really completely demotivated and going, oh, my gosh, I don't want to go to work today or, gosh, there's something that's happening, to actually moving you closer towards being either receptive to the thing that you're wanting to resist and, and, and working your way through it. So I'd sort of say to people, have yourself a podcast that is energising towards you. Perhaps look for tunes and things that take you back to a time when, which, oh, my gosh, they might make you laugh or every time that, you know, that it's almost like you could step back in time and you remember having that time with your girlfriends or with mates or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, that was a song, you know, or it's yeah. a Jimmy Barnes song, you know. It's one of those, you, you know, you see people, when you think about it, you go to bars and you see people get up and, you know, there's a song that comes on and everybody's on the dance floor. Everybody's wanting to, you know, to, to sing to it. It touches something. It emotionally and physically lifts them. So my hack is to assess have a podcast or a podcast or a, uh, a, 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 a probably like a playlist. It doesn't need to be long, it can be short. 
Think about the day that you've got ahead. Know what you've got coming ahead and choose your playlist according to help position you to be prepared for or move you towards working through those things that you've actually got coming ahead. Um, for me in the morning, like yesterday, I started, I sort of started clinic at 7 a.m. and I think I finished at 9 p.m. So I didn't get home till 10 p.m. I knew it was going to be a long day. So for me, it's like there's some 80s stuff, a bit of 80s stuff from a movie that I got. It's like, oh, that's a really cool soundtrack. So there's specific songs like, yep, you, as soon as you hear it, you, there's no other option but for your body to respond to the vibration of certain sounds, certain compositions. So music particularly, lyrics as well. So there's music that's one thing, that's so tune, melody. Lyrics then as well, that adds another level of emotional connection if you so choose it. So be really considered. I'd say people be really considered. Have yourself a really cool playlist. If there's meetings and things that you feel anxious about or you've got to do public speaking, have yourself in your mind a playlist where sometimes even if you can't listen to it for real, it's a song that you know that you listen to the tune head and it takes you, it connects you to being in a stronger place that prepares you to be ready to deliver what you need to deliver. Yeah, that's a cool. I love music. I suck at music. You know, I never learned to read music, but, you know, I love listening to it. And <laughs> funnily enough, I work with musicians. So, <laughs> but that is, that's really, 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 really pivotal. So a lot of the work that I do with that. So I thought taking it from my clients as well and bringing it in and the research that I've done with it, playlist, man, get on it, get on it. Yeah, and be really considered about how you do it. Yeah, it's like not just listening to it. It's like choose strategically, have something that, has you feel towards something, you know, either if it's also, you know, not just preparing for something, but if you know that there's something that you need to revisit that holds grief and pain and you're avoiding it, that music can be sort of the softening segue into you experiencing and feeling your way through that. And, you know, time limited. Don't don't let it just go on ending so you're going to be a miserable mess. It's like there's a couple of songs that's like just allow me to connect to that that has meaning to that particular circumstance. Let me connect a little bit with that. Let me process a little of the emotion that I'm holding towards that and make it finite. Yeah. So there you go. Music. That's that's my that's my little hack with that one. Love that one. All right. Last question for you. Anyone alive has to be alive that you would like Ooh. to have a conversation with um, and invite them to dinner. And you know, ideally, they would answer all your questions. Alive. Okay. Okay. No. Look. Actually, I will. Yeah. No. No. It was. It was like. Oh. So. Okay. So. Uh, uh, there's two incredible um, therapists. Uh, one of them, well, the one that who is alive, his name is Dr. Brian Weiss. Now, Dr. Brian Weiss is a psychiatrist in the US. He's an incredible guy now. I don't want to obviously give you the too much of the story because we don't have time. But uh, basically in a nutshell, so Brian Weiss is a psychiatrist doing extremely well, but he was sort of, uh, you know, really intelligent, dean of his department, et cetera. He was head of psychology or professor whatever back in the early 80s. And, you know, he's still practicing today, but different type of work. And what was happening is he was experiencing um, some progress with clients, so doing some great work. And then what would happen is his clients would recede and it's like, oh, no, this is not good. It's like, I need to do something different here. What can I try? So he decided to give clinical hypnotherapy a shot. He got some supervision with some comrades in his um, in his division, in his faculty. And uh, what actually started happening was people were starting to recall past lives. Now, I know that, you know, for your readers, it comes down to, you know, what your level of belief is and, you know, take or leave from it whatever you want from 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 this particular information. So what would happen, though, is people were experiencing um, quite pivotal shifts when they were just, and he wasn't necessarily orchestrating this, clients were just reporting this. So he would do just a natural um, clinical hypnotherapy session and clients would start to regress themselves to a degree and start to recall things from what would be constituted or recognised in some other ways as a past life. So not current, present day, but something they've experienced somewhere else, either on earth or potentially in another dimension. I was like, whoa, 
that blew my mind when I heard about it, you know, a few years ago. Now, what was happening with some of his clients were um, there was a lady, for example, and his book is out there, so I don't necessarily have a plug for his book. I'm not looking to. I don't have any. I have to declare that. I don't have any financial associations with recommending his books. But Many Lives, Many Masters and also another one called Only Lovers Real. I think they're actually MP3s that you can buy through um, either Hay House or Brian Weiss's website. Anyway, so he's narrated these. And he tells the story of his client. I think one of them was Catherine and then there's another one, Elizabeth. And so one of them was actually experiencing really terrible grief. So she'd lost her mother in her current lifetime and she was making some progress of getting through the grief. Grief cycle by research usually takes around 18 months or so. Not always, but, you know, that's sort of the leeway we look to work with a therapist. And it was getting to that point she really wasn't making any progress. So what happened was she experienced a regression and she recognised that there were certain things that were happening where her and her mother were so closely intertwined in the different lives, different lives, so plural, um, they're so bonded to each other. And each time they were sort of separated and there was a terrible experience where they were separated. I think her mother or she was the mother and her mother in this life was her daughter in a previous one. They were separated because it's like a tsunami or a tidal wave came through, just killed everyone and drowned everyone in the village. And she described her mother or, you know, that being being torn out of her arms and they were separated. So there was no, no preparation, nothing. It was just they were torn apart from each other. And so after revisiting that experience, the anxiety and the levels of grief and the impact that it was having on her ability, the teariness that she was showing it with every day, she was this sadness, this overwhelming physical sadness that she was carrying in her body, lifted and shifted incredibly quickly. And she was able then to think of the death and the passing of her mother, but certainly not carry the emotional weight and intensity. And off she went on with continuing life. Really interesting. So Brian Weiss is someone who I'd love to sit down and just to I guess listen to the story and the discovery. Also listen to the you know the value that he he finds it more of the value of what he finds clients experience, and also how that particular type of therapeutic framework could be incredibly beneficial to people who are open to that that perspective of you know seeking support through therapy. It's it's incredible. It's limitless almost. Um, if that is the thing, and you know there's many accounts, it, it, there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of accounts of people experiencing this. Um, there's another podcast called Past Life Regression Podcast, not Brian's, but another one. And it's just, it's it's infinite almost, the number of circumstances where people are experiencing this and experience incredible healing in ways that are not necessarily conventional, you know, traditional uh, sort of, you know, frameworked one plus one equals do, let's take this step CBT type of work. Um, and it can be prolific, you know, the benefits can be incredibly prolific as well in more ways than what the client was anticipating or what they were aiming for. So, you know, no necessary guarantees, but it's, it's, that's, that's someone who I'd love to really sit down and say, you know, where do you want us to take this now? You know, he's in his golden years. It's like, well, what do you want us to do? You know, who are your therapeutic disciples, so to speak? What do you want them to do? How do you want them to take it forward? How would you want your legacy to live on? Or how would you want the legacy of this work to live on? Because he's not the only one doing it. Michael Newton is another one, but he's passed on. <laughs> so he doesn't fit the, he doesn't fit the criteria. You, you said you wanted someone alive. <laughs> He passed on back in, I think, in 2016. But, yeah, he also was doing, you know, incredible work in this area. And they didn't look for it. It came to them. Clients just started reporting this. And they like, oh, my gosh, what do I do with this? So they had to backpedal and really, really quickly increase their skills to go, oh, my gosh, this continues to happen. I need to become a better practitioner to accommodate this. And now how can I use this to help more and more clients who possibly have this perspective of accessing therapy in a way of healing? Yeah. So, He's one of my idols in that sense, therapeutic sense, and you know, at some point, that's that's on my suite of skills to be able to to learn and to be able to help include in part of the practice work that I do with clients and performance work as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's a 
That's a really interesting way to end this podcast. And I thank you so much for talking about, you know, the work that you do and the way that you impact people, but also the stuff you're interested in. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's a little bit left field. Um, I'm always, a, I'm very open as a practitioner. I'm not, you know, swayed. I'm always trying to be very conscious of biases. And, you know, we always come, we were born with those and we develop those. And so it's always, I see it as something different as a learning experience. As much as we're evidence-based in the framework, we've got to be really careful about how we're doing this. We've got to be, you know, our job mainly is to manage safety for our clients and obviously then to, to heal them as, help, help, help them heal as best we can. But, um, you know, all sorts of things. If I hear of something that's actually a benefit to someone and actually has, you know, a, quite a, 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 just a, a prolific impact or, you know, it can have an impact that helps someone that I'm not a kind of like, what is it? I'm curious to know. And I think constantly looking to be open to exercising that scope um, and also being able to be effective in doing that. So not just, you know, he who, you know, chases two rabbits, catches none. So not that spray and pray, let's just get up, you know, across every single possible thing. Like I can see that there's a real value in it and I actually am akin to being able to be able to acquire that skill and be effective for clients in that. Absolutely, I'm open to exploring that and looking to take it on board. But sometimes it's not necessarily a fit. So, um, yeah, it's really more about attunement. But, yeah, hopefully during today, um, Ali, they've been – I sort of wanted to throw some resources in there if people wanted to be able to go read further and, um, you know, a variety of things as well. So not just straight, you know, core, hardcore psychology there's some coaching stuff I think hopefully your clients can benefit from too. Some different techniques and methodologies to talk about goal setting and things like that as well that, you know, you can hopefully that's something you can definitely be weaving into your clients' um, exchanges with as well. Um, but, yeah, just sort of uh, and some just uh, introducing a little bit of unconvention, I guess. Yeah, unconvention. I like that word. <laughs> unconvention. Yeah, I'm a little bit unconventional. So we have fun. I laugh with my clients. You know, people say, what on earth are you doing in there, Helen, with your people? I'm like, oh. Therapy doesn't have to be just hardcore and, you know, going through the tough stuff. I think, gosh, my, there has to be fun in this as well. Yeah. No, I love that. And I really love everything you talked about today. And thank you so much for giving me the chance to pick your brain. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Happy to, you know, any time, you know, anything that can, you know, help obviously the work that you're doing. I definitely would love to be able to help and compliment and keep on supporting the work that I know that you guys are actually doing. I mean, expanding upon that. And, uh, you know, if clients have got questions as well, um, definitely happy to be on, you know, in some way, shape or form to contribute to answering those or helping them, you know, be a signpost to help pivot to what next best thing could actually be to help them on their journey. So where can people find you and get in contact with you if they're interested in the type of work that you do? Ah, okay. So I have to admit, um, my website is there, but it, it's pretty poor at the moment because I'm I'm one of those people who I'm actually in more fascinated about doing in the you know in the work with clients, and <laughs> not so good at my marketing. Certainly not my digital marketing. So my website um, is like Helen De Silva Performance Psychology Group. I'm at www.hdppg com.au I have to admit it's a very bare sort of website at the moment because just work has just been so incredibly rewarding <laughs> I've spent so much time in doing that um, in the coming sort of six or so months uh, there will actually be some more online resources that people can actually access and I sort of want people to know that what they're accessing if this is not going to be cookie cutter stuff that I know that you can probably get somewhere else I'm not just saying that for the sake of hey you know I'm unique it's more I'm coming at it from a practitioner perspective so everything I shared today it's like there's research then there's actual practice. That is stuff that you just don't get from reading books. It's stuff that you don't get from reading journal articles. And so what I'm creating is actually coming from a practitioner base, from seeing it, feeling it, testing it, seeing what clients report back, and not necessarily in controlled studies. So as much as those controlled studies and journals are great, 
they're controlled studies where a lot of the time they're finite environments. When you then actually have to apply these skills, there's a whole level of extra levels of variables that are influencing someone's ability, capacity to apply these skills. And that's where what I'm actually building, there's a sort of a short online course that's coming regarding that. So some of it's looking at goal setting. Some of it's actually looking at helping people learn how to use imagery work as well, because I think that's something everyone needs to be able to benefit from. And actually, you know, increasing, how do you actually use mindfulness? Not just, oh, let me just sit there and, you know, do like a meditation. It's like, no, 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 no. What does it actually feel like? What's an actual practical way in which this looks like? So that's to come in the next six months. But if people want to find me, I'm there. Or they can email me directly. Um, Yeah, so there's a contact sort of there through my website or just, you know, Helen, H-E-L-E-N, at, you know, the sort of the domain handle as well. So, yeah, so that's sort of where I am, yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. And um, I'll, I'm sure we'll chat more soon. Indeed. Happy to be of help. And, you know, if your audience have got any questions, then at some time you want me to get on and help answer some of those. Totally would love to be able to do that in whatever way I can. Awesome. Thanks, Helen. Thanks for listening to the Better Being Podcast. If you want to learn more, follow us on social media at Better Being PT on Instagram and as Better Being on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like what you heard, drop us a review. And until next time, stay well.